Now today, friends, we come to this very awe-inspiring 13th chapter of Revelation. And we have introduced to us here now the two last personages of the seven that were introduced to us actually by the seventh trumpet. And we had five of them introduced to us in chapter 12. The woman, that's Israel, the red dragon, Satan, the child of the woman, Christ, Michael is the archangel, and the remnant, that is, the 144,000 that were sealed of God are going to make it through the great tribulation. Now, here is where the action is when we come to these personages. Here is revealed to us the great warfare that's going on between light and darkness and God and Satan. And we see it manifested as we draw to the end of the age during the great tribulation period. Now, these final two performers are brought before us And one is the wild beast out of the sea. He's both a political power and a person. That's in the first ten verses. Then verses 11 through 18, we have the wild beast out of the earth. And he's a religious leader. Now, we are going to look at these, but there are a few preliminary remarks I would like to make. These two beasts are presented to us as wild beasts. That's the literal translation. Now, it's bad enough to be a beast, but to be a wild beast compounds the injury. Now, there's much disagreement among reputable Bible expositors as to the identity of the beast. Some consider the first beast to be a person, while others treat him as the last form of the Roman Empire. Some treat the second beast as the man of sin, while others consider him merely as the prophet or the John the Baptist type for the first beast. Now, these difficulties, I think, arise because it's impossible to separate a king from his kingdom. A dictator must have a realm over which he rules, or he's no dictator, though it's difficult To distinguish the two, it seems that the first beast is the Antichrist, the ruler over the restored Roman Empire. Because in chapter 16, verse 10, we are told there, the throne of the wild beast. So I would judge from that that there's somebody to sit on that throne, and that is the beast that is here. But He wouldn't be the beast if he didn't have the empire. Now, after determining the identity of the first beast, it's not really difficult to identify the second. He's a man, the false prophet, the religious leader who leads in the worship of the first beast. And he is Antichrist also. We'll see that. Now, there's another view being held today that Antichrist is a denial of, of the person of Christ rather than an actual person. In other words, Antichrist is false doctrine rather than a person yet to be revealed. And I think we can answer that, by the way. The explanation, I think, is found in the meaning of the preposition anti. It has two usages, Antichrist. Well, anti 
has a meaning of over against. And the second meaning is instead of or in place of. And it has both meanings in Scripture. And actually, John, not in Revelation, but in his first epistle and also in his second epistle, he mentions the Antichrist. And he's the only one that uses that designation. And I think that we can see both of these characteristics, the one that is against Christ and one that imitates Christ. And Antichrist is both. And how can you have it all in one person? Well, we're going to see that. And I'd like to take just a moment to turn to John and see what he has to say. We've looked at this before when we started First John, but we'll look at it rather briefly now. In First John 2.18, the first reference, he says, "'Little children, it's the last time.'" That was 1,900 years ago. We've been in the last time a long time. "'And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists by which we know that it is the last time.'" Note here that John not only says there's going to be an Antichrist, but already in his day there were many Antichrists. Now, what was the thing that identified an Antichrist? Well, will you notice what he says in 1 John 2, 22? He says, "...who is a liar, but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He's Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son." Now, Antichrist denies the deity of Christ. He denies him. He's against Christ. And we see that he is the enemy of Christ on the earth. In the fourth chapter, John's going to tell us some additional facts concerning Antichrist. He said, "'Beloved, believe not every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. By this know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, of which we've heard that it should come and even now already is in the world. In other words, any person or any group or any book that denies the deity of Christ, that's Antichrist. Now, I'm very frank to say that I consider the play Jesus Christ Superstar is Antichrist. It's against Jesus Christ of the Bible. And I think that any minister today that denies the deity of Christ, he's Antichrist. He's against Christ. Now, over in Second John, verse 7, John says, "...for many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ cometh in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist." Now, antichrist is a deceiver. He pretends to be Christ, and he's not. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ said, that there are going to be many that'll come in my name saying, I'm Christ, and you're to test them, because every spirit is not a God. You need to test 
the spirits today. And I think a great many people that get all worked up and wrought up in these little groups, you better start testing your little group. You better start testing the little cult that you're in. And instead of being a super-duper saint, you may be following an antichrist, actually. So that the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24, "...for there shall arise false Christ, false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect." Now, there will arise false Christs. That is, they'll be able to perform miracles. Now, this last beast is really a miracle worker. He's an antichrist. And we're going to see that the first beast is political antichrist. The last beast is religious antichrist. You see, even the devil can't put it all together in one person. And I think there are two persons, these two beasts here, are antichrist. Now, let's come to our text today. We have here in verses 1 and 2, and I'm going to read from my translation, and you follow closely the authorized version. I read, and he stood on the sand of the sea. What do you read? Well, you read, I stood upon the sand of the sea as if it was John. Now, the better manuscripts today show that he... And who's he? Well, who were we talking about in the last chapter? It's the same he there, because that's the last modifier. And that, of course, is Satan. And so the dragon, Satan, he stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a wild beast coming up out of the sea. Now, who brings him out of the sea? Well, Satan brings him out of the sea. And he comes out of the sea. The sea in Scripture is a picture of the nations of the world, mankind, like the restless sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns ten diadems, and upon his heads names of blasphemy. Now, my friend, this is something to boggle the mind here again, is this beast. This is really a beast. And if I met him in the dark, I know one thing. He and I would be going the same way, only I'd be lots farther down the road than he was. Now, will you notice this? The dragon stands on the sand of the sea, and it is he who brings the wild beast out of the sea and dominates it. Now, this is his masterpiece. He's a person who heads up the old Roman Empire. Rome, as we've said before, just fell apart. And this is the only one that'll ever be able to put it back together again. Now, if you remember our study in Daniel, we went in detail on that. That's the reason you need to know Daniel, to know Revelation. Now, God apparently is taking his hands off of this earth for a while and turning it over to Satan. And personally, I believe that that's poetic justice and that actually the very fact that evil has appeared and Satan has become who he is, that God must let him demonstrate that when he gives him full sway in his way, he'll not be able to produce. That is, Satan would always be able to say to God when he's in the lake of fire, he'd say, look, you never gave me a chance. If you'd taken your hand off and let me alone, 
I would have been able to accomplish my purpose and establish a second kingdom. But God's going to do that so that he won't have that opportunity. And so we have here then this tremendous statement. And as we said, the sea represents the nations. And this wild beast is similar in description to the fourth beast, that nondescript beast in the seventh chapter of Daniel. There it represents the prophetic history of the Roman Empire down to the little horn and his destruction. You remember that beast there that looked like it became dormant for a while, and then it had these seven heads, and out of one of the heads that came up this little horn, out of the ten horns, there came up a little one. And this little horn put together three, and he was able then to take over the other seven. That is back in the book of Daniel, and I'm saying it very quickly. But you see, at the time of the writing of John, much of the prophecy of Daniel had been fulfilled. The first three beasts had. Babylon the lion, and Media Persia the bear, and the Greco-Macedonian empire, that represented the panther, that is the third beast. And when Daniel gave it, it was prophecy. Now it's fulfilled in John's time. So John centers on this last beast and upon the little horn, because the last beast has appeared and the Roman Empire just fell apart. And so at the time of the writing of John, much of the prophecy of Daniel had been fulfilled. And John was living in the time of the Roman Empire, having been exiled to the Isle of Patmos by the Roman Emperor Domitian. Already signs of weakness and decay were visible in the empire. And John was a spectator to that which was still future. The emphasis is upon the rule of the little horn of Daniel 7. And the little horn is set before us as a wild beast, for he's now ruling and controlling the Roman empire. That is, that'll be for the great tribulation period in his prophecy. And the little horn and the wild beast are identical here. For those of you that are Bible students, you'll understand that. And if you don't get that, I would suggest you get my book on Daniel and read the seventh chapter. That would be basic to understanding this. The wild beast is the man of sin and antichrist, the final world dictator. And the last verse of this chapter confirms this view. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man. We're going to see that in verse 18. So we're dealing with a man who is the world dictator at the end, and we'll see the development here in this chapter. Now, there's been a great deal of excitement in our day, and I'm included in the group that are excited, about the fact that there is the common market in Europe today. You see, there have been many that have attempted to put Europe back together again. Charlemagne attempted that, and he failed. I think that the Roman Catholic Church has attempted it, and certainly has not succeeded in that. In fact, the Holy Roman Empire that centered in Vienna, Austria, Franz Joseph, was the last of the emperors in the Holy Roman Empire. And his son apparently was either murdered or committed suicide. It's a 
very sad story. And that's always been interesting to me because that was an attempt made. Napoleon attempted it. Kaiser Wilhelm attempted it. Hitler and Mussolini attempted it. But you see, God hasn't been ready yet, and he won't let him appear until the time of the Great Tribulation. And to me, the common market is interested, not because we're seeing prophecy fulfilled, but we're seeing a stage set that reveals that prophecy can be fulfilled. Why, a great many people have said down through the centuries, you'll never get Europe together. Well, you can't until God's ready, and Satan is going to supply the man. And I think the common market is just an interesting instrument, that's all. Now, the little horn comes to power by first putting down three of these rulers, and afterward he dominates the other seven, and he becomes from that the world dictator. We'll see that. Now, the seven heads are not easily identified. They're interpreted in chapter 17, verses 9 and 10, as seven kings. And these do not reign contemporaneously as the ten horns do, but they appear in a chronological order. Now, some have interpreted them as representing certain Roman emperors, as Domitian, who was then ruling. And others interpret these seven heads as the forms of government through which the Roman Empire passed. They had kings, consuls, dictators, decemvirs, military tribunes, and emperors. And a third view is that the seven heads could represent seven great nations of antiquity which blasphemed God. Rome, Greece, Media, Persia, Chaldea, Egypt, and Assyria. Now, the kingdom of the beast would be the seven, which is yet to come. And Sice takes that position. Now, another likely view is that the seven heads correspond to the seven heads of the dragon, which denote exceptional wisdom. Satan energizes the man of sin, the last dictator. And we're going to see that. So you take your pick here. I'll be very frank with you. Here's a place where I can't be dogmatic. I can't tell. And I don't think it's that important, by the way. Now, all seven heads are guilty of blasphemy. Blasphemy manifests itself in two ways, according to Gauvet. Making oneself equal with God, that is, usurping his place, and slandering and taking God's name in vain. Now, the emperors of Rome were guilty of the first form. They made themselves equal with God. That was emperor worship in the Roman Empire. And the Pharisees were guilty of the latter when they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Now, the beast here is guilty of both forms, as we're going to see as we get into this chapter here. Now, I'm reading verse 2, and will you listen very carefully? And the wild beast which I saw was like unto a panther, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Now, this is really a weird-looking creature. It's never been seen on land or sea or in the air. This is something that is, without doubt, a real spectacle. Now, John notes that he's a composite beast. 
And we can begin now to formulate some very definite facts concerning Antichrist, and we'll note them as we go along. Now, he combines the characteristic of the other beasts which Daniel saw in the vision in Daniel 7. And again, I would like to say to you, and I regret that I can't go back to Daniel 7, but we went over that. Those that were with us and have my book on Daniel, I think that you're prepared for this. But I trust the rest of you will forgive me for not going into detail because we did that in the book of Daniel. Now, the outward appearance was like a panther. And Daniel says in Daniel 7, 6, After this I beheld in lo another like a leopard, which had on the back of it four wings of a fowl, the beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, the panther and the leopard are the same word, by the way, and it could be either one. I like the word panther much better. Now, this was Greece, the Greco-Macedonian Empire. And Greece was noted for its brilliance and its advancement in the arts and sciences. It was noted for its philosophy, for its architecture, and for its marvelous literature. And the language itself is a wonderful language. Now, the empire of the beast then will have all the outward culture, which was the glory of Greece. And it will have the feet of a bear. Now, again, that reminds us of the second beast of Daniel. Behold, another beast, a second like to a bear. It raised up itself on one side, had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. Daniel 7, 5. Now, we saw this was Media Persia, noted for its pagan splendor as it paddled and waddled over the earth like a gargantua. Now, the empire of the beast will have all of the pagan splendor and wealth that Media Persia had. Now, it has the mouth of the lion. And this is the first beast of Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, 4, I read, The first was like a lion, had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked. It was lifted up from the earth, made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Now, this was Babylonian autocracy. When Nebuchadnezzar ordered the death for the wise men, and then later on for the fiery furnace for the three Hebrew children, and even Daniel himself, his life was never quite safe, there was none to question his authority. He was the head of God. He was an autocrat. Now, the man of sin will be one of the toes of the image that Daniel saw, composed partly of clay and partly of iron, he'll rule with the autocracy and dictatorial authority of Nebuchadnezzar. This final world dictator comes to his zenith under the domination of the beast. And the source of his power is found in Satan, who raises him up, empowers and energizes him for the dastardly dictatorial job that he'll do. He's the closest to an incarnation of Satan that appears in Scripture. You remember that Luke said that Satan had entered into Judas Iscariot. That's in Luke 22, 3. 
Also, Christ used similar language with Simon Peter in Matthew 16:23, And the man of sin is the incarnation of Satan. And very candidly, I think that we can say that Satan has certainly entered into him. And that is something that Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9 and 10 says, "...even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved." All right, now I'm coming to the wild beast, the death-dealing stroke in verse 3. And I'm reading my translation. And one of his heads, as though it had been slain unto death, and his stroke of death was healed, and the whole inhabited earth wondered after the beast. Now, this verse, together with Revelation 17:8, has led many to view that Satan actually raises the beast from the dead. And I probably ought to turn to Revelation 17, 8, and we'll just look at that for a moment also. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Because of these two scriptures, there are many that have taken the position that the beast is actually raised from the dead by Satan. Now, friends, that cannot be. And the reason that that cannot be, Satan does not have power to raise the dead. That's just something that has not been given to him at all. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only one that can raise the dead. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. And he says, As the Father raiseth up the dead, and giveth them life, so the Son giveth life to whom he will. John 5, 21. And then in John 5, 28 and 29, "...all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation." Now, the important thing to note here is that only the Lord Jesus can raise the dead. Now, Satan can't do it. So I take it for granted that this is a false resurrection. It's a fake. And the very interesting thing is that the early church even thought it was Nero. And Augustine in his day, what means the declaration that the mystery of iniquity doth already work? Some suppose it to be spoken of the Roman emperor, and therefore Paul did not speak in plain words, although he always expected that what he said would be understood as applying to Nero, whose doings already appeared like those of Antichrist. Hence it was that some suspected that he would rise from the dead as Antichrist. And they all expected Nero to be raised from the dead. Now, there are others that take the view that the beast here refers to the Roman Empire, you see. 
over which the beast rules, and the imperial form of government under which Rome fell will be restored in a startling manner. Now, I believe that, but I don't think it's a resurrection. Rome never died. Rome fell apart, as we shall see. Rome's like Humpty Dumpty that sat on the wall, had a great fall, and all the king's horses, all the king's men cannot put Humpty Dumpty together again, but Antichrist can and will put Humpty Dumpty back together again. That is the thing that he will do, and that'll be a marvelous thing, let's say. But the Roman Empire, therefore, has not truly died. It lives on in the nations of Europe today. I think both of these views do have something to command them. While both views have serious objections, there can be no real resurrection of an evil man before the great white throne judgment. And at that time, only Christ will raise the dead of both saved and lost. And Christ will raise the dead who stand before the great white throne. That is something that is evident. He said, as we've indicated, the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, that is Christ. They shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now, Satan has no power to raise the dead. He's not a life giver. He is a devil, a destroyer, a death dealer. And the Roman Empire is to be revitalized and made to cohere in a miraculous manner under the world dictator, the beast. Yet, verse 3 seems to demand, I think, a more adequate explanation than this. And I believe that the beast is a man who will exhibit a counterfeit and imitation resurrection. This will be the great delusion, the big lie of the great tribulation period. God will give them over to believe a big lie, and that's part of the big lie. You see, they won't accept the resurrection of Christ but they sure going to have the resurrection of Antichrist, and it'll be a fake. Now, his stroke of death was healed. It shows the blasphemous imitation of the death and resurrection of Christ. And the challenge will be in that day, what has Christ done that Antichrist has not done? And nobody today can imitate the resurrection. Well, they might imitate it, but they can't duplicate it. But yet, Antichrist is going to duplicate it in a way that'll fool the world. It's the big lie. We say today, Christ is risen. And so the boast is going to be in that day, so is Antichrist. The Roman Empire will spring back into existence under the cruel hand of a man who faked the resurrection and a gullible world that rejected Christ is finally taken in by his forgery. You see, we've now begun to get a composite picture. We saw a rider on a white horse bringing a false peace into the world. You know that in the history, recorded history of man, man is engaged in 15,000 wars, and he signed some 8,000 peace treaties. Yet, in the entire history, he has only enjoyed 200 to 300 years of true peace. And certainly G.K. Chesterton was accurate when he says one of the paradoxes of this age is it's the age of pacifism 
but not the age of peace. And so he comes in on a false platform of bringing peace to the world. And we in the United States, how many times have we elected a president on the platform he's going to bring peace? And he took us right into a war. And that's been true of president after president. We have been a warlike nation. We are not very peaceful, by the way. In fact, it's difficult to find any neighborhood where there's real peace. I'm going to give two quotations here that are quite remarkable. One comes from Toynbee, who's the director of studies in the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Now, he gave this in 1953. He says, "...by forcing on mankind more and more lethal weapons, and at the same time making the world more and more interdependent economically, technology has brought mankind to such a degree of distress that we are ripe for deifying any new Caesar who might succeed in giving the world unity and peace." And that's all Antichrist will have to offer the world when he comes. He said, I'm going to give you peace. And they're all going to say hallelujah and put him in office. That's the way we do it over here. And we're supposed to be a very cultured, educated, sophisticated, civilized nation. The world will put Antichrist in power. Now, Bishop Fulton J. Sheen made this remarkable statement. Listen to it. The Antichrist will come disguised as the great humanitarian. He'll talk peace, prosperity, and plenty, not as a means to lead us to God, but as ends in themselves. He will explain guilt away psychologically, make men shrink in shame if their fellow men say they are not broad-minded and liberal. He will spread the lie that men will never be better until they make society better. And may I say that's one statement of Bishop Sheen I'll agree to, a hundred percent. Antichrist is yet to come. And so what happens? Well, he's going to make himself God. I'm reading verse 4. And they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority under the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, and who is able to war with him? And this is the supreme moment, I think, for Satan. He wants to be worshiped, and the whole world is going to worship him in this period. My friend, if the Spirit of God took his hand off this world today, and off of you and me, I'm afraid that many of us would be in the position of backsliders, And if Antichrist appeared, we'd follow him like a little faithful dog following his master. Who is like unto the beast? What a parody on the worship of the true God. Why, they say, look, we are worshiping something wonderful than the God of the Bible. And then in verse 5, I read, And there was given to him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And there was given to him authority to continue... For it in two months. And the only good thing here, and I'll give you the good news first, he won't be here but 42 months reigning like this. In other words, three and a half years. And when it says a mouth speaking great things, it means he's a big mouth fellow. Daniel mentions that concerning him. He is really going to be a big talker. 
He'll promise anything. And that's the reason you ought to be careful listening to anyone today on radio, including this poor preacher, or any politician, or anyone else, an educator today, and news media. I want to tell you, we need to test everything that you and I hear today. Antichrist is going to have charisma. He's going to be able to talk himself into the good graces of this Christ-rejecting world. Now, verse 6, and I read it. He opened his mouth for blasphemies against God, the blasphemous name in his tabernacle which dwell in heaven. Now, this is the dreadful limit to which the beast goes in blasphemy. He's against Christ and his church that are in heaven. Thank God the church is not here. I do not see how anyone who studies Revelation could believe that the church is going to go through this period. Now, verses 7 and 8. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. What are we talking about? We're talking about those that are living in the great tribulation period. And there was given to him authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation, and all that dwell on the earth shall worship him, every one whose name hath not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that hath been slain. And as Spurgeon used to say, I'm sure glad I got my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life before I got here, because if God had waited till I got here, I never would have got the name in. Well, I think that's a very wonderful statement and the way to explain this. This is the darkest hour in the history of the world. And the church, thank God, will not be here. Now, this is something you can be thankful for, friends. I want to say that I'm thankful that I'm not going to be here and will not be under Antichrist. I'm under Christ, and I'm not looking for Antichrist. I'm looking for Christ to come. That's the important thing, the all-important thing. Now we're going to see him here as he becomes this world dictator. What are God's people going to do? Defy him? Will they be able to stand against him? Will they be able to fight him? God's going to tell him a most unusual thing to do. Now let me read here verses 9 and 10, which deal with the first wild beast. He says, "...if any man hath an ear, let him hear. If anyone is for captivity," that is, bring together captives, "...if anyone is for captivity, into captivity he goeth. If any man shall kill with the sword, with the sword must he be killed. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints." And this is without doubt, to my judgment, one of the most awe-inspiring statements in the Word of God. Now, he says here, if any man, and he says it here three times, and it's an invitation to the ear of man, in fact, the ear of anyone to hear the Word of God at any time in any age. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And it's, if any man hath an ear, let him hear. That's where it begins. If any man hath an ear. Here is, again, the wedding of free will and election. If any man. Now, any man means any man. 
But if any man hath an ear, well, doesn't everybody have ears? Yes, there are some people that don't hear, though they have ears. There are people that just don't listen at all. They don't hear. I had a neighbor. He was retired. He worked around the house a great deal, and his wife was a very wonderful person, but she talked a great deal. And when he'd get outside to work, he would lift that hearing aid out of his ear. And he did it, I discovered, for a purpose. I remember he was pruning a tree one day. And she came out, and she was just talking a blue streak to him for about, well, I'm sure five minutes. And all of a sudden, she noticed he didn't have his hearing aid. And she says, you haven't heard a word I've said. He just kept on sawing. And she turned around and went back in the house. And I discovered that's exactly what he wanted. He was out there to prune the trees and not carry on a conversation. There are a great many people, though, that don't have a hearing aid to hear the Word of God. They don't want to hear it to begin with. Now, we want to make it possible for every person to study the Word of God in the next five-year program. But if you think that I have any dream that everybody in the country is going to be studying the Word of God beginning next year in a five-year program. May I say that I do not have the wildest dream that that could come to pass at all. And I know that it's confined to those that have an ear, an ear to hear the Word of God. But any man, that's free will. But you've got to have the ear. That's selection. And that's the way God weds them together. Now, what he's saying here is something that's not for you and me. At least I hope it's not for you. I know it's not for me. I trust it's not for you because we have already made the determination that beginning at chapter 4, we were dealing with future things that were beyond the church and that the church was no longer in the world. And in this section, John has made it clear that we're in the great tribulation period so that we know where we are. And the thing that makes these two verses here so awe-inspiring is this, that he says to God's saints at that time, there will be Israel and Gentiles and multitudes in the world. There will be ruling, as we have seen in this chapter, an Antichrist, a ruler who is a world dictator. And I mean a world dictator. Men are not going to buy and sell, as we shall see, without his permission. They'll not be able to travel without his permission. He'll rule the world as no one has ever ruled in the past. Now, why is God permitting this? Well, God is saying to those that are his own, don't resist him. To begin with, it wouldn't do you any good. And the second thing is, this is the... Patience and the faith of the saints of that time. If you're in the world during the Great Tribulation, then you're going to have to bear with patience and faith the awful trial that will be coming even on God's children. And so God has apparently withdrawn from the world, and he's now turned it over to Satan. You see, today, the Holy Spirit is in the world. And he curtails, he smothers resistance. He today is holding back evil. Now, it doesn't look that way, 
But just think what it'll be when he is removed from that office and evil is permitted to have its day. An evil man and Satan will have full sway. And as we've said before, this actually is poetic justice. The devil and his minions of evil and lost mankind will never be able to say to God, you never gave us a chance. If you just have given us a chance, why, we would have been able to work things out. Well, God's going to give them a chance. A brief period, but if it wasn't a brief period, there'd be no flesh left here, the Lord Jesus said. Now, that brings us to the second wild beast, and he comes out of the earth, and he's a religious leader. The other one, as we've seen, is a political ruler and a political power and a person. In fact, the power will become worldwide. Now, we have his description given first, and I'm reading from my translation. And I saw another wild beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, and he was speaking as a dragon. Now, this wild beast, I think, is easier to identify than was the first, because after you establish who the first beast is, I don't think there's too much trouble to identify the second one. Now, the first beast comes out of the sea. And the second one, you'll note, he comes up out of the earth. Now, what is the difference? Well, as we saw, the sea represents the peoples of the world. They're like the surging and restless sea, the great mob of mankind today. And that's always been true. But the earth here refers to the land of Israel. And I think that that can be established. The earth from which this second beast arises is symbolic of Palestine. And it is naturally assumed that the second beast comes from Israel. To begin with, he is a Messiah. And Israel would not accept him unless he had come from their land and was one of them. Now, we are told here, and he had two horns like a lamb. Now, that suggests, does it not, his imitation of Christ. The first beast is opposed to Christ. He's anti-Christ, opposed to Christ. This beast imitates Christ. He is anti-Christ in that respect, instead of. He poses as Christ. And he has two horns, though, like a lamb. But he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And he imitates the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Only this pseudo-lamb does not subtract sin, but he adds and multiplies it in the world. He does not come to do his own will, but the will of the first beast. He's a counterfeit Christ. And he'll do a lot of talking about loving everyone, but underneath he's a dangerous beast just as the first one was, deceiving the whole world. Now, in Matthew seven fifteen, the Lord Jesus said, "...beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves, they're wild beasts." And that is picture this one. He's the epitome of all of them, and he is an antichrist. So, actually, it takes two men to fulfill the position that 
Christ fulfills. And, of course, they don't fulfill it, but there has to be two men. And again, the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24, "...for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and they shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect." Now, the false prophet is the John the Baptist to the first beast, and some identified him as King Saul or Judas. And may I say that's mere assumption that could not be proved. Now, notice his delegated authority, and I'm reading verse 12. He exerciseth all the authority of the first wild beast in his presence, and he maketh the earth and the dwellers therein to worship the first wild beast whose wound of death was healed. Now, he has a delegated authority from the first wild beast, which actually makes him subservient to him, but he also is on a par with him. He has the same power. Now, he leads in a movement to exterminate the harlot of Revelation 17. That's the false church that will go into the Great Tribulation. And John doesn't even dignify that church by the name church because it's not a church. The true church left and is called a harlot. The church is called a bride of Christ. And here you have the last vestige of an apostate church with all of its humanism. We'll see that in the 17th chapter. Then the false prophet will offer the world something new to worship. The first wild beast, the willful king, the man of sin, the last world dictator. Now, I'm not going to take time to go to the Scripture references, but those of you that have been with us know that we picked this up back in Daniel 11th chapter, verse 36 and 39, Matthew 24, 24, which I just quoted, and 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 10. Here is presented this terrible second beast that is going to exalt the first beast to the place of worship, whose wound of death was healed. And that reveals that both the first and the second beasts are faith healers and miracle workers. This is the big lie and the strong delusion that's going to come to the world. Now I want to read verses 13 and 14. And he doeth great signs that he should even make fire to come down out of heaven into the earth in the sight of men. And he deceiveth the dwellers on the earth through the signs which was given him to do in the presence of the wild beasts, saying to the dwellers on the earth that they should make an image. It's an icon. That's the Greek word. An image, an icon to the beast who hath the stroke of the sword and liveth. Now, this false prophet is a worker of signs and miracles. We're told that. Our Lord said that. Our Lord warned against this false prophet. His deception is that he apes Elijah in bringing fire down from heaven. And he's a combination of Jannes and Jambres down in Egypt, we're told. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and sorcerers. Now, the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments, for they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. In other words, they were good magicians, and I think they had a satanic power then. This one will in the end time. 
And we read in Matthew 3:11, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. And this is John the Baptist. But he that cometh after me is mightier than thou, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And you remember John the Baptist had nothing to do with fire. But this false prophet is going to imitate that. But the fire, of course, is actually the Lord Jesus baptizing today with water. But in that day will be fire, and that's judgment, of course. Now, the false prophet plays with fire until he's cast into the lake of fire, as we'll see later. Now, the world is taken in by this deception, with the exception, of course, of God's elect, those that are his. They cannot be deceived. Now, the false prophet shows his hand by causing to be made an image of the man of sin. The word for image is icon, which means likeness. The big production is a likeness that emphasizes the wound of death that was healed. It's interesting to note that the Lord Jesus did not permit anything connected with his physical appearance to survive. But the likeness of the Antichrist will evidently be placed in the temple at Jerusalem, and I believe it is the abomination of desolation to which our Lord referred when he said, in Matthew 24:15, "...when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whosoever readeth, let him understand." Now, I'm not going to turn to these scriptures, but Daniel 12, 11, 11, 31, 9, 27. I have all of these in my book, by the way, on Revelation. And I hope you have our book of Daniel, because you're going to find it very helpful at this point. And this is the abomination of desolation that is to appear. And what it is, we can't be dogmatic, but we believe it'll be that image of Antichrist, the first wild beast. Now, we see the delusion is perpetrated in the world. And I'm reading now verses 15 through 17 in my translation, which I cannot recommend. It was given to him to give breath to the image of the wild beast, that the image of the wild beast should both speak and cause that as many as should not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free and the slave, that there be given them a mark on their right hand upon their forehead, and that no one should be able to buy or sell except one having the mark, even the name of the beast or the number of his name. And believe me, has there been a lot of guesswork about this number that he puts and the mark of the beast? Well, first of all, let's note it was given to him to give breath to the image of the wild beast. And I want to tell you that that's going to be a different idol up to the present. Remember, Isaiah mentions it. In fact, all the prophets do that idols can speak. And Paul mentions it, but believe me, here's one that does speak. And I think they'll call the scientists of the world in to look over this image. And I think they'll all give a report. They don't understand it. They can't explain it. This is a miracle. And this is something that'll cause the whole world to turn and worship the beast. And he's wedding now religion and business, you see. You've got to have the mark of the beast to do business 
Well, in John's day, soldiers were branded by their commanders. Slaves were branded by their masters. And those attached to certain pagan temples were branded by the mark of the god or goddess they served. Ptolemy Philopater had all Jews in Alexandria marked with the ivy leaf. That was the symbol of Dionysius. But in our day, a newspaper columnist who wrote an article entitled, Living by the Numbers... He deplored the fact that we have to carry so many different cards in our wallets and concluded with this paragraph. Listen to this. It would simplify matters if the government would assign each of us a single all-purpose number which we could have tattooed across the forehead to spare us the trouble of carrying all these cards. That's an interesting comment. Now, don't misunderstand me. This is not the fulfillment of prophecy today, but it sure shows you how it can come to pass. But what is the mark of the beast? Well, it's not given us to know. We're not told that. But that hasn't kept many expositors from telling us what it is. Now, will you notice verse 18? Here is wisdom. He that hath understanding, let him count the number of the beast. For it's the number of man, and his number is six hundred. And sixty and six. Well, here is wisdom. I think this is a rather ironical declaration when we consider the maze of speculation accumulated through the centuries on this verse. And you talk about the numbers racket, here it is. In the Greek, there is a very beautiful arrangement of this number. It's hexakosioi, hexakonta, and hex, 666. Now, numerical values attached to each letter, for sure. But we must let it stand there, for the visible number of the beast and its meaning awaits the day of his manifestation. That may be a nice little jigsaw puzzle for a lot of people to play at these numbers. But my friend, you will not know till you get to the great tribulation period. And I would suggest that you try, take your mind off of that, present Jesus Christ today, that we might reduce the population of those that have to go through the great tribulation and will know what the number of the beast is. Now, I'm not anxious to know the number of beasts. And after I have read this, may I say that I am thankful today I'll not have to live in that period. I'm very thankful today that I know Jesus Christ as my Savior. But instead of spending time with Antichrist, I want to know Christ. I can say with Paul that I might know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. And it also tells me not to trust man. It was Jeremiah that said in the 17th chapter, verse 5, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm. And again... He says, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. And this passage doesn't interest me a bit as to what the number of the beast is or who he is or anything about it. It makes me want to know Jesus Christ more because my plan is to be with him, not because of who I am or what I've done, but because Jesus Christ died for me on the cross. And by his grace, I'll go in his presence. And I'm thankful for that today.